0: Well, hello, I'm Tony Payne. Welcome to another edition of The Painful Truth. And as promised, this week we're going to get to Chapter 4 of the Two Ways to Live Evangelistic book that I've been writing and that many of you have been helping me to write by giving me feedback along the way. This is a free public edition of The Painful Truth. I thought I might send out this chapter or this portion of Chapter 4 to everybody on the list. And I really look forward to hearing feedback from all of you. Uh, on this chapter about the death of Jesus. Of course, if you'd like to read all of the chapters so far and get the rest of the evangelistic book as it comes out and contribute and make comments and help me improve it, you'll need to be a partner or subscriber to The Painful Truth. That's not a difficult thing to do. In fact, I've made it extra easy by putting a 90-day free trial in place at the moment. For those of you who'd like to give it a try, just go across to thepainfultruth.online, to the website And you'll see the 90-day free trial offer right up the top of the page on the website. Just follow the link and you'll become a partner or subscriber. And then you'll get every edition each week over the next 90 days. And you'll also be able to go back and look at all the archive of the earlier posts of the book, as well as all the other articles that are on the site. Anyway, that's enough of the uh, shameless promotion. Let's get to this next chapter, to chapter four of the Two Ways to Live evangelistic book. And it's the chapter that corresponds with box 4 or point 4 of Two Ways to Live about Jesus' death. And you may well remember that that point has three kind of main statements in it in Two Ways to Live. Because of his love, God sent his son into the world, the man Jesus Christ. Jesus always lived under God's rule, but Jesus took our punishment by dying in our place. And this chapter, chapter 4, is basically built around those three statements, although not in a kind of neat sort of one, two, three kind of way. The real challenge in this chapter is to work out what not to say. There's just so much to say and to argue, so many points that can be put forward about who Jesus is, about his coming into the world, about the nature of his life and his teaching, and about his death and its meaning But I want to keep the chapter to a reasonable length and so one of the things I'm really interested to hear from you is whether there are things that I've missed out that really should be there, um, whether that's some extra illustrations or extra points, and whether there's something there that you think I could get rid of if I need to. Now in this first portion of the chapter, I've basically talked about who Jesus is, about his coming into the world and about his life lived under God's rule And in the second portion of the chapter that I'll send out, God willing, next week, uh, I'll deal with the death of Jesus itself. But this first part is already about 1,600 words long, and I thought that was probably enough to send out to you to have a look at and to consider. And I'll finish it off and send the rest next time. Well, without any further ado, let's get into it. Here's chapter 4, The Life and Death of Jesus. The backdrop is in place, the supporting characters are in position, the lights go up, and now the main act begins. The central character of the Christian message steps onto the stage of history, Jesus himself. The background we've traced so far of God as creator and ruler of all, of human rebellion against God and God's justice against us, all of this prepares us. For Jesus' arrival. This is how the Bible itself is structured. The first half of the Bible, the Old Testament, sets up the great problem of God and us and the world. The second half, the New Testament, tells what God Himself does to redeem the situation through Jesus. However, it'd be wrong to think that the Old Testament is only about the doom and gloom of the human problem. Also running through the Old Testament like a scarlet thread is the patience and kindness and love of God for flawed, rebellious humans like us. God chooses a particular nation, Israel, the descendants of Abraham, to be his own special people. Time and again in the Old Testament, God kindly and lovingly rescues his people from the consequences of their own actions. He delivers them from their enemies... And provides for them in multiple ways, even though they continue to be stubborn and rebellious towards Him. In fact, God repeatedly promises in the Old Testament that because of His love, He will one day step in personally to fix all the mess that has erupted and spread because of human rebellion against Him. Sometimes God promises that He Himself will come and bring mercy and salvation. For example, in Isaiah chapter 40. At other points, he promises that he will send his anointed king or Messiah to set people free and defeat evil and reign victorious over all. Now, a little footnote here that will be important later on. In the Old Testament, the way someone was made a king was by anointing them with oil. So the Hebrew word for anointed one came to mean essentially the king that God had appointed. That word was Messiah. And the word Christ in the New Testament is the Greek language equivalent of that same word. So a Messiah or a Christ is a king appointed by God. Here's what the prophet Isaiah predicted would happen when God sent his anointed Messiah to bring relief to his people. Isaiah says, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me. There's that Messiah word. He has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God. That's from Isaiah chapter 61. At the time that Jesus was born, some 700 years after Isaiah's prophecy, the Jewish people were still expecting and waiting for this liberating Messiah King to arrive. But when Jesus did come, he didn't fit their expectations. He still doesn't meet our expectations today. If God was going to send a Messiah to fix everything up, to right all the wrongs, to bring restoration and liberty and salvation and all the rest, how would you write the script? What sort of person would he be? And what would he do to save the day and set everything straight? You probably wouldn't have him being born to a young, unmarried girl in an out-of-the-way place in the humblest of circumstances, with his first cradle being a manger. A manger was perhaps a stable for sheltering animals or maybe an animal food trough. You certainly wouldn't have him live in obscurity as a tradesman until his 30th birthday and then have a short three-year career as a teacher and wonder worker, give him a support crew of nobodies and lowlifes, have the entire intellectual, religious and political establishment against him and then cap it all off by having him executed in the most humiliating way possible. In so many ways, Jesus wasn't and isn't what people expected. And there's so much that could be said about him, who he was, what he taught, what he did, the impact he had on those around him. There are four accounts of Jesus' life in the New Testament, the four Gospels as they are called. It's well worth reading one of them to fill out what I'm going to summarise here only briefly. There are really four significant things to know about Jesus – We'll talk about the first three of them in this chapter, and the fourth in the next. They are his arrival, his life, his death, and his resurrection. His arrival. Most of the time we talk about babies being born, not arriving. To arrive means that you've come from somewhere else. That's how the New Testament authors constantly talk about Jesus. He wasn't simply born, he arrived. He came into the world. He was God's own son sent into the world by God to be born as a man, sent to fulfill God's ancient promise that he would one day come to his people and rescue them. One of the most striking and beautiful passages in the New Testament, the opening of John's Gospel, puts it like this. In the beginning was the word... And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. And then a bit further down, John says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. With the birth of Jesus, John is saying here, God himself stepped into his creation. His own Word, the very expression of his mind and person, became flesh and lived among us. As the Gospel accounts unfold, we constantly see people trying to come to terms with this. On the one hand, Jesus is clearly a real flesh and blood man like anyone else. He eats, he sleeps, he weeps, he gets angry, he suffers. And yet he keeps speaking and acting as if he is more than a man. He tells people that their sins are forgiven in Mark chapter 2, verse 5. He speaks and acts with an extraordinary authority, even over the creation itself. He heals diseases and stills storms with a word, in Mark chapter 2 and in Mark chapter 4. He claims to be God's Son, sent from the Father, the only one who truly knows the Father and whom the Father has appointed to be the judge of the world. That's in John chapter 5. It's no wonder that the people of Jesus' time were astonished and confounded by him and wondered whether he might be the long-awaited Messiah King. As C.S. Lewis once famously wrote, Someone who says the kinds of things that Jesus said about himself is not simply a noble moral teacher. He is either seriously deluded about himself or else a charlatan making outrageous claims about himself. Or else he is who he claims to be, God's own son sent into the world. But a nice, safe, admirable moral teacher? This is not really an option that Jesus himself leaves open to us. What about his life? All the same, Jesus certainly did live an impeccably moral life and was an extraordinary teacher. For me personally, this is one of the reasons I find the gospel accounts of Jesus' life so compelling. I'm a devoted reader of novels, and one of the hardest tasks in fiction is to create a genuinely good character. The more moral and good you try to make your character, the less believable they become. Perhaps this is because we know that humans are so flawed, and that even the best of us, can't escape the gravitational pull of our own weakness and self interest. In the Gospels, though, we constantly encounter someone who does what is right and good and loving and compassionate and never seems to get it wrong. Jesus knows when to be indignantly angry at injustice and corruption and when to weep over it. He knows when to rebuke religious hypocrites and when to offer them a path to forgiveness and change. He is just perfect on every occasion, and yet in a way that is utterly believable as you read it. I don't see how you could make Jesus up. The Bible's own explanation for Jesus' perfection of character is that he was the one human being in all of our history who didn't reject God in any way or rebel against his rule, as we all have done. Jesus always lived with God as king. His teaching also constantly revolved around this theme. He spoke often of the kingdom of God, what it would mean to live under God's rule with God as king instead of rebelling against him. He taught about living a kingdom kind of life, a life of love. And justice, mercy, and kindness, and so on. That is, the kind of life we were created to live, but which we've all walked away from and messed up by rebelling against God and his ways. Jesus always lived under God's kingship or rule, and he taught others to do the same. Of all the people who have ever lived, he was the only one not to come under the sentence of God's judgment, He was the only human who didn't deserve to die. And yet, he not only died, he died an agonizing and humiliating death as a criminal. You have to ask why. Well, that's where this chapter is up to. And from here, I'm going to go on and talk about the death of Jesus, taking the punishment for our sins, stepping into our place and taking the death that we deserved. I'm thinking at this stage that I'll do that by coming back to Isaiah's prophecy, Isaiah 53.6. That's the Bible verse for this part of Two Ways to Live these days. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, but the Lord has laid on him the iniquity or the guilt of us all. I might also touch on some of the gospel references to Jesus' death from Jesus' own lips, such as in Mark 10, dying as a ransom for many, uh, and perhaps drinking the cup of God's wrath and judgment in the Garden of Gethsemane. And I'm thinking I might also perhaps pick up where Peter, in 1 Peter, uh, quotes and references Isaiah to talk about the meaning of Jesus' death. Still crafting all of that, but stay tuned for that next time around. In the meantime, um, I'd really like your feedback on the first part of uh, this chapter. If you want to read it, if that would be easier, just to kind of browse back over and think about how it came across, you can, of course, do that over on the website. Uh, There's a text version there in the post. And I'd really appreciate any kind of thoughts or suggestions that you might have. Well, thanks once again for listening. Uh, Great to be with you and to talk about this most wonderful of all subjects with you. Look forward to chatting again next time. I'm Tony Payne. Bye for now.